You're listening to the Man Overseas Podcast, a show that explores methods and ideas to help you live a bigger life. You will hear interesting stories of how people live, how they save and invest their money, and why having time wealth is better than being a billionaire. If you are entertained, educated, or elevated, be sure to hit the subscribe button. We're just getting started. Now here is your host, Brad D'Antonio. Hi friends, welcome. I'm so glad you could join me. My special guest is a return guest. He's been on the podcast before. He's an author and speaker, and I'd probably sacrifice a digit to trade voices with him. He's just got that voice that any man would want. But you know, he tells me on this episode the line he used to pick up the love of his life, Miss Julie. And it had nothing to do with his voice. It was what he said. And I'm usually opposed to lines and openers. I think how you approach a woman is more important than what is said. But what he said was gold. I gotta hand it to the man. So I hope you young bucks listening out there who are looking penub in all the wrong places. I hope that you tune in. And you're if you're a young buck, you're not gonna get that Wookan Penub joke. That was old Eddie Murphy on SNL. I was having a conversation the other day with somebody about just how many different combinations there are with acronyms. Like how was SNL still available to call Saturday Night Live SNL? Well, when you have twenty six letters in the alphabet and you have three spots, there are so many combinations that can be made with those letters of the alphabet. It's amazing. So that's why you have so many acronyms. You could start anything you wanted. My coffee table company, or coffee table company, since I'm looking at my coffee table now. And CTC, if it became real popular, would be available, right? CTC. Everybody would know what that is. So... I don't know if we're ever going to run out of acronyms for popular things. But anyway, that's not very interesting. What is interesting is how this podcast came together. Ted will text me things like a clip from Joe Rogan that he thinks is idiotic. And I usually am on the other side of the argument. So, for example, I don't think Ted would ever say anything untoward about a female. And as my audience knows, I think we should talk about everybody, whether it's African-Americans' experience or the female experience or what the privileged, so quote-unquote, privileged class is going through with suicide, mental health issues, whatever it is, we should be able to talk about anything. And unfortunately, we're living we're living now through a time of censorship, and that is a shame. If the Twitter files has taught us anything, it's that what a time to live through, right? I mean, ugh, it's disgusting. But Ted said, for example, that he thinks Dr. Hotez shouldn't debate RFK Jr. 
on the Joe Rogan podcast. He doesn't think they should have that conversation because one is a scientist and one is the other is one with an opinion. So there you have it. Everybody's different. And I love having conversations with people who are different. They have different views from me. That's how you learn, right? Ted is an incredibly interesting man. He's 79 years old. As I said, author and speaker. I think he'd tell you he stays young by ballroom dancing five nights a week. It's how he met Miss Julie. And that golden line that he used, (laughs) I uh, hope that I never have to use it. But if all shit hit fan, I would would probably use it. I'm going to go for that line. So stay tuned, gentlemen. Ted's upbringing was in a small community. And I think that gave him an appreciation for simplicity, which I really value too. I truly believe that you should figure out at what lifestyle you can be happy and settle there. And I always equate lifestyle with expenditures. So... Enough, there's a number that is enough. And once you get there, then you have so many options as to, for example, how to spend your day and who to spend it with. And and I remember somebody telling me one time, the greatest benefit of getting wealthy is not having to deal with relatives that you don't like. (laughs) And what he was doing was equating your socioeconomic status with how many problems you have to deal with with relatives. (laughs) And I thought that was so interesting because I think that's kind of true. And maybe it's because you need each other. I I don't know. But there's something to be said for having family close to like when I visited Bali for example and they all would live in this little compound so the way Bali houses are it's like you have a family room but it's a separate building from a bedroom which is a separate building from another bedroom or when you go to Japan they have love hotels And the reason they have love hotels, and they have these in Korea too, is because families stay together in the house to the point where if you wanted to make sweet love, you would go get a love hotel. (laughs) And I'll never forget when we visited Japan, my buddy Chase's good friend Hank was picking us up the next morning in Osaka after we had flown in and taken a train. We flew into Tokyo, took a train to Osaka, and Hank picked us up from the train station and took us to our hotel. Well, I tried to book a hotel that was close to $100 a night because Japan is incredibly expensive. Well, the only thing you can get close to $100 a night is one of these love hotels. Well, they don't announce on Booking.com, for example, that this is a love hotel. But sure enough, I'm staying with my mom and my then-girlfriend, now-wife, at this hotel. And they're 
is a bowl of condoms at the front desk. <laughs> so can you imagine the next morning Hank comes to pick us up in his nice BMW and he's picking up Chase's best friend who is staying at a love hotel with his mom and girlfriend. And that wasn't the only love hotel we stayed at, by the way. We stayed at one in Kyoto, and I didn't know it was a love hotel. And that came with extras, like things that vibrate on the nightstand and movies running at all times. But it was nice. Like, it it was a really nice hotel. And if I had to guess, it was $145 a night. And mom, if you're listening, you'll remember this because my mom was traveling with us at this time. She was, her husband had a job in South Korea. So we, we went and stayed in Korea for about a month. And then we traveled down to Japan and then Vietnam or no, Hong Kong and then Vietnam. And then my mom flew back to Korea and my then girlfriend, now wife, went on to Cambodia Thailand, Bali, Australia, New Zealand, and back home. But an incredible trip. The fact that I was able to do that with my mom was was really, really cool. But I wouldn't visit Hong, Hong Kong today. And love hotels, something I'll never forget. <laughs> so anyway, I was going to say it was my mom's birthday. We celebrated at a love hotel. I remember waking up the next morning going over to her room that had the same gadgets and things. (laughs) And we got her a cake and a card. And I remember her posting it on Facebook. So how about Metastock and what it's been doing? One of my clients has been dollar cost averaging into Metastock. And I want to say it's up 100% in the last year. Don't quote me on that. But it's been going buck wild, buck wild. So we don't talk much finance on this episode. I do ask him how he would invest $100,000 in a few different places. And he says AI. whatever, Whichever companies are focused on AI is where he would want to be. So I don't want to bore you any more than I already have. I'm going to turn it over to our conversation. I hope you enjoy me and Ted's conversation, which is our second episode together. So thank you for tuning in. Here's Ted. Ted, welcome back to the show, man. Good to have you. It's been a long time. How long has it been? A couple of years. At least. I think maybe three or four. Could be. Was it pre-COVID or during COVID? It was pre-COVID. Pre-COVID? Yeah. I don't think you talked about your upbringing. Tell me, where are you from in this world? Well, people ask me that, and usually I start by saying I come from the state with the largest wilderness park. The park is so large, it's larger than two of the New England states. It's larger than Yellowstone, Yosemite, and Glacier National Park put together. So which state is it? Are you trying to get me to guess here? Yes, absolutely. Uh, Let's go with, it's going to be a trick question, because it's probably not that big a state. So, Indiana. New York. New York. (laughs) <laughs> I see that face on people. What a way to preface New York. I, I, know, I know. I see that look on people's face when I say New York, especially here in Texas. Did you grow up on a block of 800 people? or No, the whole village was 811 people. The whole village? Yeah, it was dairy country. Uh, literally 
If you can picture New York State, you have Lake Ontario. That's the last of the Great Lakes. It flows out through the St. Lawrence River, 700 miles to the North Atlantic. Right at that point, the name of the town is Cape Vincent, and it's a cape. My mother's property was one mile of water from there in Canada. So, yes, cold weather. When I was a kid, walking newspapers door to door, because we didn't toss them that way. <laughs> in the wintertime, the coldest night was uh, minus 35. Oh, my goodness. It also gets the lake effect snow, so I've seen eight feet of snow in one week. I've seen snow less than eight times in my life. Crazy. Well, you know, people say, how can you stand it? To us, it's normal. It happens every year, so what's the big deal? And you're dressed right. appropriately, and you've got a mental attitude. Okay, why mm-hmm. not? But it was living in that size village. There was no dangerous places, no dangerous people. Now they didn't know your name, but they knew the name of your dog. It was a cocoon. That keeps people well-behaved, don't you think? Absolutely. It's not the police. It's the community. Community comes from the word common. It's what you have in common. And that was settled in 1805. By whom? By the French. It was an association with Vincent Leray de Chamon, which is a Frenchman, who Benjamin Franklin, when he was ambassador to France, he went through that person instead of the government because it was more proper not to talk to the king. So it was a Cape Vincent, Leraysville, Chameau, Vincent Leray de Chameau. He had a dog named Roger. There's a village called Roger. And the cemetery, first cemetery is Catholic cemetery. And when did you get out of there? How old were you? I joined the Air Force when I was 17. And that year was, so you're 79? 1961. Okay. 61 was, how many years ago was that? 64 years ago. Okay. So you joined the Air Force when you were 15? 17. 17. Okay. My, My math might be a little off. And I taught advanced electronics, which really set me up for life because that's technical. And the technology was just starting to grow then. And so uh, I was at a base in Georgia, which covered the problems for the seven southern states, Brazil and Puerto Rico, and they'd send their equipment in. But every two weeks, they had 10 technicians come in from those different areas for upgrading. I went through 38 weeks of school in Illinois, and I went down there, and I was a technician for six months. And the first sergeant came to me and says, you know, Glenn is leaving. And Glenn's the instructor. I said, yeah, I know that. He said, you're the next instructor. Now think about this. I have six months as a technician. I'll be instructing people who have years as technicians who outrank me and are older than me. Intimidating? I can't remember that it was intimidating, but in the military and in the Air Force, they tend to give you a hard time just for the hell of it. Politely, you know, in fun, but even so. But it it threw me in the deep end of the pool. And so to be able to articulate what I experienced in school plus my six months was a challenge. But I'd learned something at that time that has done me well the rest of my life. They would ask me questions I didn't know the answers to. So I was studying them. I started collecting questions. So each class, I got better and better because I could field more and more questions. And I had to do my research. How much would Google have helped you at that time? Probably not. No? No. Today, I do a massive amount of research. So uh, as far as I'm concerned, the phone in my pocket is the encyclopedia of the world. I don't use it as a toy, except I love doing research, so it's a toy. And then I was there 
four years and 10 days, got out, and that was during the Vietnam era, of course. And then what I do? I went to Vietnam. Vietnam. Yeah, yeah. we talked about that last time. Did you feel like you had to build yourself up as a man to attract a woman? Not at all. No. And I've been bald since I was—not totally bald, but I've been bald since I was uh, 27. It's never not aware of any issue. It's like my voice; it's always been there. And I think it has to do with maybe my energy level and the fact I like music and maybe I'm reasonably articulate. And by living in seven countries, maybe that's interesting. I don't know. But I've never thought of my looks. And Julie, my present partner, she couldn't believe that people didn't talk about my looks. I just think I'm just me. So I think that you can get intimidated by that. I don't know why men want to spend so much time growing hair, for example. Or now they're using makeup and they're shaving their bodies. And I have no clue about that whatsoever. I've had a beard since I was 22. So that's 57 years, something like that, back when you were fired for it from a job. Much of the shaving bodies phase started in the 90s. And I've noticed, yeah, it's gone away somewhat, but I do remember when that phase started. I think it had a lot to do with wanting to look cut up, you know, shredded. And so if you shaved your body hair, you could better show your abs, for example. And guys became, at that time, the term metrosexual Oh dear, was ubiquitous. And yeah, guys became metrosexual to attract what women wanted. I mean, that's what men do, right? Try to become what women want. But you've talked lately about how women are so much more educated than men, right? Oh, yes. The graduation rate from college, universities, is higher among women than men. And that gap is growing. 20% of men drop out of college. Women persist. Is that to go into trades, or why do you suppose they're dropping out at such a high rate? I don't know. I think that women are more long-term thinkers than, than men. Men going, let's say, go back 50 years and before. The physical strength of men was required in agriculture and in industry and construction, things like that. But the whole system in the world, as we know, especially in the United States, has moved to brain energy instead of brawn. True. Therefore, it's not masculine. It's not pumping up. And this is, I think is creating a long-term problem because men are becoming less attractive financially. Definitely. And women, first of all, it starts with the liberation of women. There was equal opportunities for women. And then they became educated. Now they're making more money on average. They're not making as much in the same job as men are, but as a group, women are making more money. So you they're, don't think more stable. equally qualified women make as much as equally qualified men? You Correct. think there's a pay gap there? Yeah, there is. There is a pay gap. Now, among doctors, let's say, no, but among many occupations, yes. So let's say I'm a business owner and have a hiring budget of 300000 What you're saying is I could hire four women – for 75000 or three men for 100000 but I'd hire three men because I'm, I'm sexist when I could have four women? By the way, these numbers go up okay, as the employee sure. count goes Certainly. up. Certainly. Well, I think first, let's go back to 2008, 2009, the economic downturn, and there was too much risk. But as studies in United Kingdom, United Kingdom separate studies, and also in the United States studied the top 500 companies called the Fortune 500s. And they found that those 
companies that had three top executives or three board members who are women did 40% better return on investment because they're, they're negotiators, they're communicators, they're team players, much more than men. And men are trying to outdo each other. Oh, I can outrisk you. No, I can outrisk you. Oh, you know, macho. I could see that. Yeah. But it's hard to get more women into those positions because there are more men that are willing to work 70, 80 hours a week to get to those positions. I don't know because if you look at colleges and universities, women are working long hours to make it through and get degrees where men aren't. Now they are, yeah. Yeah, exactly. You're right. And that gap is, as I said before, is really getting – so I think that men may be intimidated and frustrated – they may not be find appropriate mates because the women are more educated and making more money in general. We're talking about in general, not not housekeepers and things like that, but right. through education. Well, women want the highest value male they can find, and there just aren't enough of them out there. And this has been Correct. proven out in studies where most men find most women attractive, whereas most women don't find most men attractive. And so especially with the dating apps, the women swipe left, which is I don't like you, on 80% of the men, whereas men swipe right on 50% of the women or 70% of the women, but the women are mating with the top-tier men. And so if you're a top-tier man, you're getting all the women. Sure. The, the other thing is that going back to my mother's day and back 30, 30, 40 years ago, the primary thing that women look for in a mate was security, and that is not as secure today. Well, I think the pendulum's swung too far. Do you know that the average grade of a high school girl is an A? I believe it. That's that's ridiculous. They, they work their butts off. That, well, They're it's pleasers. also it's tailored toward women. I don't think boys and young men were designed to sit in a desk for seven hours and pay attention. And I also tend to believe that women tend to be the growth of the bureaucracy or the administrative state of universities or, or even high schools. I don't know about that. No? No. What I do know, we're talking about male examples here, and that's a problem as well, among fathers or mm -hmm. among men in general. But in, in schools... For example, there was a time where women were not allowed to go to college, but all the teachers, almost all the teachers were female, even then. In fact, there were some states that a woman could only work in school if she was not married. So there was a female influence there, yet we've produced all these Nobel Prize winners and so forth and so on. So something's going on there that works. And women are more nurturing and they're better communicators. It's inherent. That's how they're built. They also think long-term because they're the ones that get pregnant and have to raise the children and have to pay attention to it. Men, going back to cavemen days, men were focused on hunting, quiet, steady target, where women were in the community working with other people so they're more communal in nature. Mm -hmm. And again, going back to communication and negotiation, they had to be communicators and negotiators because men had the superior strength and size. So if you want to keep away from... Domestic abuse, I don't think they call it back in those days, domestic <laughs> abuse, but you had a challenge. So they had to be better communicators and negotiators because yeah. they didn't have the physical strength. They had to use their brains. There's this old joke at a Super Bowl party where five couples are sitting around on the couches and the Doritos bowl goes empty and 
somebody says, well, who's going to go fill up the bowl? And the men all say something like, well, I paid for the Doritos. The other one says, well, I went and got them. And so there's this competitiveness, whereas the women say, hey, we'll all go together and fill up the bowl. Exactly. You boys sit here. So, And if you're talking about you're teamwork, right, you're talking about teamwork, it's teamwork. Yeah. They're better collaborators. Yeah. And now, let me, a little bit of my background, that. I have two brothers, and our father died when he was 39. So my mother raised three boys by herself. I was 16 months old, my younger brother two months old, and my older brother five years old. And she was unusual. During the Vietnam War, she was with us in Vietnam. In her middle 50s, she had a pickup truck and camper and traveled for two years by herself learning Spanish in in, uh, Mexico. So this is a woman that was born before women could vote, but she was artistic. She had played piano, sang, and so forth and so on. But she was a very practical woman. In fact, when I graduated from high school, I had a summer job. I had summer jobs since I was 14. When I graduated from high school, I was out raking leaves after my summer job because it's, it is the autumn up there. And my mother came out to the front yard and said, Ted, what do you plan to do next? And I paused just a little bit too long. She says, well, you got two choices, pay room or board or move out. And that's a great mother. <laughs> she was practical, common sense, newer sons. Kids live with their parents now until they're 27. I know, I know, I know. But what, what, a, what a growth thing for me. Oh, yeah. I was more that way at 17, 18. What do you think of this generation of young men that we have a culture that tells them that they're rapists or racists or toxic or even if they succeed, they have privilege. I mean, how do they not feel a sense of hopelessness when that's what, quote unquote, the culture tells them? You see, I'm disengaged from that because mm-hmm. I'm a few months away from 80 years old. So I can't tell you about that. I can just tell you how I grew up and we had responsibility. My first job when I was 14, which you could not do now because there's regulation. Up north, you cannot bury people in the wintertime because the ground is frozen like concrete. So you have to bury them all in the spring. So you put them in a vault at the cemetery. So I was involved in what I called spring planting, burying people that died over the wintertime. And then I was, and I've always been taught not to walk on graves, right? I mowed the grass all summer, so I walked on all the graves. Wow. I was instantly involved in working with men. I was the only boy. In fact, the first coffin we put in the ground, there's two boards you put across the grave. You put the coffin on top of it. You put horse harness. At that day, there was no nylon straps underneath the boy. Then you had four people, in this case, three men and a boy. And I didn't want to embarrass myself, so I took that strap and wrapped it around my hand about four or five times so it wouldn't slip, right? So I wouldn't drop the casket. And so we lowered it in. The, but it, what happened is my arm wasn't three feet long. It pulled me in on top of the casket. Oh, no. <laughs> so I lost my face anyway. <laughs> Did that change your relationship to death at all, having no, a job no, like that? Death has no relation to, to me. It's, cemeteries, I find, are fascinating history places. And a small town like that, I knew many of the town names and my great-grandparents and so forth and so on. So, no, cemeteries have no influence. What's, and then I had a full service. I played in the band. I played trumpet. So if it was a military World War II burial, then I'd go home, put my band uniform, come back, and I'd play with American Legion. They'd be the volleys shooting, 
with gun salute, and I'd play the taps. So I was full service. I not only buried them, mowed them, but I played taps on them. So you're not aware of, of what's going on with young 20-somethings or 30-somethings, like Generation Z or the millennial generation and how things have changed in intergender dynamics? Because I was hoping you could provide some insight from your time and how we could maybe improve intergender relations, get more men competent and authentically masculine, because you come across to me as a very masculine sort of guy. Yeah, I don't think of myself as that, but I have lived an interesting life, living in seven different countries and different cultures and so forth and so on. But I never thought, and I've been called an adventurer, and my brothers are somewhat the same. But we never thought of ourselves as adventurers. We just said, why not? Probably the influence of our mother. She was that way. We camped from the Canadian border down to South Carolina, sleeping on the ground. There's a woman and three boys. That was before interstate highways, before there were dial telephones in my hometown. It was the old two-piece telephones you picked, received up for one for the year and one to speak in. And we were such an oddity that the Spartanburg Herald run a front-page story on us. Here's a woman thousands of miles from home, sleeping on the ground, a woman. What is this? And with pictures, I still have those. Oh, yeah? I like to see them sometimes. Yeah. I think there's a saying that you heard, probably it came out of Africa, actually. It takes a whole village to raise a child. So I think it's the whole community. One of the challenges I see, theoretically, is in the cities, you don't know your next-door neighbor. There's no community. I don't care where you were in Harlem in New York in the 1920s. If you stepped out of line in your your black area, there was somebody going, oh, I know who you are, I know where you come from, and so forth and so on, or it's the Jewish community or the Puerto Rican community or whatever. There's very little community now. And the community is the example. And we don't respect our elders, we respect the youth instead nowadays, which is ridiculous. I Not res- respect, more venerate, I would say. I don't know if we venerate the youth at all. I don't. I know they're you just, don't. They're just, they're just folk. Okay? There's just more. Okay. One thing I discovered in the last seven years. Now, I, I said I lived in seven countries and five major different cultures and different languages, different religions. What I found out now is there's one of the problems is social media. Now, in my small town, you gossip it over the back fence. And, of course, that was opinion or fact or guessing and so forth. But there were people in the community that knew better and so forth and so on. Now the gossip is worldwide. Who knows what? There's no controls. If you don't have the ability to differentiate the good from the bad, or you only listen to one source. And when I grew up, especially in the farming community, you got out and worked. And that taught you work ethic, which we don't have now. I know. What do you do? What do young boys or girls do? They well, work I can tell you. With young boys, it would be hard not to get addicted to video games because the graphics are so good. Pornography, any novelty you want to see is on the internet. Albert Einstein said, after a certain age, people shouldn't read books because you're now into somebody else's mind instead of doing your own thing. But we should revert to reading books, I think. Nobody reads books anymore. I don't think they will. I don't think they'll revert. I think that it's podcasts like this one. Depends on who's the podcast is, and they can lead you off in left field. Nothing easier to do than stop listening, that's for sure. Or and, choose someone else to and listen again, to. And you again, can't, you can't contrast and compare. The term now is siloed. 
They'd listen to one people, and it's an opinion. If you ask them, in fact, the most effective way to get into these people who don't ask questions, who are cult followers or whatever you want to call these people, whether it's a religion or whatever it is, they don't ask questions. So what you do to them, you can't give them facts because they got their opinion. What you can do is you can ask them questions, which causes them to think. And they have to go through it. Where did you get those statistics from? Who are you listening to? Do you listen to more than one source? And why do you listen to them? That causes them to think. They have to make their own decisions. You can't give them the facts because they're blowing the facts. Yeah, but you think you would have the facts. I think I would have the facts. There was an article that both Elon Musk and Scott Adams tweeted the other day about how nearly 100% of fact checkers' political contributions went to Democrats. That may be. I'm talking about in general, because I'm international, I was international, I listen to the BBC. I listen to a spectrum of broadcasts, and I say, okay, this is a one outlier over here. These all make sense. Of course, I have an idea of what sense because I've lived in war zones and things. I have a, and I grew up working in common sense jobs with your hands, and I still do, by the way. So we don't have that. People don't work with their hands anymore. They don't do practical things. Everything is information, information, and they're not discerning. They have to go to many sources, contrast and compare. And I don't, they're not doing it. They well, get siloed. Let me tell you two things about what you just said that motivated me, actually. So you talked about how we go into our gated communities and we don't talk to each other. One of the things that motivated me to become successful enough to live in a gated community was I was getting my CHL, my concealed carry license. Oh, yes. And I thought, every time I need this... I'm not going to have it because you can't bring it to the bar, right. you know, on Bourbon Street. When you're walking back to your car from Bourbon Street is when you're going to need it. You're not going to have it. Right. And multiply that by all of these different things. So, Well, the other thing is I lived in a war zone, which means you have to have situational awareness. And that's one of the things they teach in rape prevention for women. When they walk out of a place, have the key in your hand, look around, be aware, be aware, be aware. And many people are just not aware. You're right. There's a serious lack of self-awareness nowadays. Well, not, self not only self-awareness, awareness of your surroundings Yeah, in this case. That too. And in the war zone, you had to read the temperature. In 1968, a friend of mine and his wife, we ended our contracts in northern Thailand, northeastern Thailand. We went down to Penang, Malaysia, bought a Volkswagen bus, had it out of, designed it and had it by a bus company to make it a camper because there were no campers in Asia. We took it by a pilgrim ship to India. The pilgrim ship had deck and cargo passengers, hundreds of them, people going on the Hajj. That's a pilgrimage for the Muslims. We landed in India, and we drove throughout India up to into Nepal and across to Europe, which you couldn't do today. You'd be dead a thousand times over because you're going through Afghanistan and Pakistan and Iraq and so forth and so on. And we did that without being able to read the road signs, not speaking the language. But you have to be aware of your surroundings. There's no such thing as common sense. It's common from where you come from. But if you not come up in that area, then you don't have it. Working with your hands, how do we repair this? What if we break down between here and there in this particular trip? Who do we seek out? How do mm -hmm. we do that? But to us, it just, it just went. It took us four months. We took our time. We weren't in a hurry. But you just become aware of your surroundings. What I was going to say earlier is part of what motivated me to be successful was, one, to live in a gated community so that I could provide safety for my family. Mm -hmm. And two was the fact that 
my dad wasn't there to teach me how to fix things with my hands. And so I wanted to be able to make enough money to hire someone to be able to do that. <laughs> now they have YouTube, of course, and you could learn. And yes. then you have to decide, well, is it worth my time to learn and maybe screw it up or just pay somebody to do it? But I had somebody doing sheetrock work at my house this morning. That all comes down to personality. I have two brothers, right? Of the two brothers, I'm the most hands-on, creative, designing, building, manufacturing, inventing of the three of us. We all grew up in the same place. My grandfather had a shop. I was out there all the time. My brothers weren't. So there's, there's more to it than just a father or somebody who knows. We all have talents. They're just different talents. Yes. We all have different types of intelligences too, right? Correct. Correct. And so most of us don't realize we have a talent because to us it's normal. If somebody else says, hey, you got a great voice, Ted. I've had this since I was 14. Uh, what, what do you mean? I got a great uh, Yeah, I've always had this voice. What's, what's the big deal? But you don't notice those things. But we all have talents, and usually it has to be somebody else that points it out because to you, it's everyday yawn. You live it's with like, the cloak. Yeah. It's, it's like minus 35 in the wintertime, right? Yeah, it happens every year. What's the big deal? Well, I'm afraid that school is it's the only thing that kids think that they're good at, if, if they're good or not, or smart or not, is if they get the A in school. And this would, alluding to what you said earlier about boys and girls, I mean, these boys... Well, each, were, each child, each child, male or female, has different aptitudes. So you, you can teach a class because that's more efficient as far as time and energy. Each child has their own needs, but you have to find what those child's needs are. But we're not doing that. But there's a simple process which we're not using. And if you remember our last conversation four years ago, or whatever it was, if we permitted students to interrupt the teacher at any age, first grade through whatever, and in college, interrupt the teacher and ask a question, then you know exactly what the child knows or doesn't know and what they think. Hard to do. I know, but that's the best. I know, but and that's how you find out. That's the only way to find out. Yeah, because if you know exactly what they need or don't need, and then you teach exactly that, then theoretically, there's no need for final exams because you already done it. And we're all different. It is a real challenge. I, I appreciate that. And even in college, you can ask your questions at the end of the class, but that's not when they come to you. It's in the context you want to ask <laughs> the right. question. I was taking a food science nutrition class my senior year of high school. And my teacher thought I was witty. And she said, you ought to go into some kind of sales or advertising or mm -hmm. something. And that was the first time it had ever dawned on me that that was what I was going to do. I thought, oh, well, if I don't make it in baseball, I'll go into business mm -hmm. and whatever that entails, which is sales. And it was because of my ability to think on my toes and Absolutely. get along with people and things like that. But that's an aptitude. If somebody said, I need you to resolve this conflict between this person and this person, I want to take on that challenge. If I want you to pass this algebra test, no, give it to him. Give it to that guy. He's smarter. We just have different aptitudes, aptitudes intelligences. Exactly. exactly. And some of us have more than one. Einstein, for example, certainly had an aptitude for something, didn't he? We know about him. Perseverance, but, if nothing else. And he played violin. Most people don't know. I didn't know. You'll find many talented people like him have the talent flows over into some other talent. And he used to play with another genius physicist who played piano. So they get together and they... Do you think there's a correlation between how a woman behaves and how strong her man is? Because if I meet a highly neurotic woman, let's say, or worse, an arrogant, combative type, do you expect that the man is going to be 
a limp handshake. You know, he's going to be a weak and passive sort of guy. You know, you're asking somebody who's never been in that position. I know you hated me going on these tangents, but when I shake a hand now, I start soft because many cultures don't shake hands. So you're intimidating if you take the old American, I got my man, and now you've messed up your relationship not even knowing it. But if you're in America. Well, not necessarily. I can tell you, your big football players and basketball players, they don't give a tight grip because they don't want to hurt anybody. It's just a signal that you're, hello. So this making a big masculine thing out of it. For example, we have cultures that are macho. In fact, that's where we borrowed the word. That's male dominance. I'm sorry that in the United States, because women are more educated and equal opportunity, we're not dominant. In fact, even the male brain, the prefrontal cortex matures two years after the female's brain. That's prefrontal cortex. That's where mm-hmm. your executive functions. That's where you have impulse control and things like that, your coordination. So there's differences. So there's a- some women are superior. They, they mature earlier. Oh, there's definitely ways in which women are superior. There's a, uh, a comedian, Matt Reif. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but he said, isn't it interesting that women want all this equality now that the worst century in history has passed and there are no more wars and we're in this greatest peacetime in the Western world? And now, oh, yeah, you work in air-conditioned offices with plumbing and AC. Yeah, we'll, we'll take all the equality we can get. Well, so do men live in those same conditions, air-conditioned so forth and so on. In right. fact, fewer because they're more in labor jobs because they didn't finish school. Well, I'm, I'm saying they weren't cheering for equality back 100 years ago when so wars had to be fought. And, well, or 200 women, years women ago. In the, or women in the United States ago. could not vote until 1920. That's 100 years ago. True. And they were championing for it. In fact, the first champion for voting for mm-hmm. women was in England. They were the first. I bet you didn't know this. According to QZ.com, between 1480 and 1913, Europe's queens were 27% more likely than its kings to wage war. Of all European sovereigns, married queens launched far more wars than unmarried queens and kings of all types. That's from QZ.com. My question is, during that time, what was the rationale for war? Oh, was I don't it know. protecting yourself, your country, or was you aggressively went after somebody else? That's a good question. These are they're complex. They're more likely than its kings to wage war. Interpret that how you will. Yeah. As you know, I put some statistics together myself. Yeah, yeah. And I label it questioning male delusions of grandeur. And so the big problem is we don't know we have a problem. If we have a problem, we can measure it. Now, we have a lot of 844 men who have made significant contributions in Nobel Prizes, so there's some really good men out there, fantastic through history. Well, yeah, aren't we men, we have way more at the end of the IQ distributions, right? More prodigies, but also more with autism, let's say. Like more geniuses and more, we're at the end of both extremes. There are more men. Isn't that true? Or I don't know. I have no clue. I, b- I believe that's true, but don't quote me. Anyway. With all this macho and males (laughs) and this, I just, some statistics, because I was interested in this area. I'm interested in many areas, culture, language, monetary systems. I'm uh, incurably curious. So just some male statistics, and I went out, and, 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 and people who listen to this should do your own research. What does it mean to be a man? Well, males are 90% of the murderers in the world, approximately. That doesn't surprise anybody, I don't think. 
93% of the inmates in U.S. prisons are male, but they only represent 0.7% of the population. But even so, the cost for operating prisons far outweighs what we spend on education. 95% of the school shooters are male. 98% of mass shooters in the United States are male. 99% of the rapists are male. 85 to 90% of perpetrators of domestic violence are male. 80% of the serial killers are male. 80 to 90% of the pedophiles are male. And almost all the world's tyrants have been men. And all the religious leaders, whether extremists or not, are men. Do the flip side of that. Is there a flip side like plumbing and roads and buildings and air conditioning? <laughs> you know, do the, do the upside. Like, don't just tell us the negatives if you well, can. Well, what I'm trying to say is contrast that to women. That's a contrast to women. That's the contrast. It's all those statistics where men, women are not doing that. True. Men are four times more likely to be alcoholics than women. There are four times the men commit suicide than women. And that's around the world. But I have measurements in both UK and United Kingdom and here. United Kingdom is really starting. As you grow older, there's a real spread. So men have many challenges. And these all I listed before, there's no contrasting thing for females. That would have probably always been true, don't you think? Just that's right. Due to well, no, I, I, no, it's not, no, it's not a new. So yeah. you know, I'm trying to say males think we're superior and all that. Apparently not in everything. In I fact, don't know we, that we, males think they're superior and all that. That's why we have the word macho, but we don't have a female word for that. It's not much as Zeno. <laughs> but you've no, never really, heard it, right? I've read it in something you, never you heard sent it, me. Right, have you? No, I've never heard it. The other thing is misogyny. What about? It's a male term. It's what they think of women. But you don't hear a word for female. Yeah, there toxic is, there is masculinity. A, there is a word, but we don't hear it. Toxic masculinity would be the flip side. Well, misogyny is really putting down women. Now, there is a female part, but it's against men for putting them down. <laughs> In fact, I think I have the word here someplace. In fact, I just asked the question here. I know there's a term It's for the it. hatred of, contempt for, or women. prejudice against women. women. But you don't hear that against, there's not a term for women, although there is one. But that's because men are doing that to them, other than that they would have it. Yeah, I disagree. I think women are so no, mimetic culturally that they copy each other and well, become each other. But you don't, you're not exposed I've done the to 20s I've done the and 30s. I've done the research on this. Okay. okay. I just don't have it in the paper right here. And women are long-term thinkers. They have to be. Yeah, I would disagree with that too. But During divorce, almost all the children go to the female, not because they can afford him. It's because they're the best people to do Nurturers, it. sure. Yeah, nurturers. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah, they should get custody. Exactly. It's in the best interest of the child. Do you know 70% of divorce is initiated by women? I would think so, too. Yeah. I couldn't put up with the bastards. <laughs> you sound like a toxic masculinity <laughs> no, person. Right. That was a joke. Do you agree with Nietzsche's quote, women, they make the highs higher and the lows more frequent? I can't exactly know what he's talking about. I have my own ideas on male-female partner relationships. A woman could be president, you would say, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, if we've had kings and queens and Margaret Thatcher and so forth and so on, why not? Uh, well, some they, women... They, they build relationships, and that's what you want in international affairs, the relationships. Definitely. And, and they, they're strong-minded as well. You've got that great combination there. Men and women have the same IQ. 
approximate. It's, there's hardly any measuring difference. But what women have is EQ, which is called emotional quotient, their ability to deal with people. In the world, it's all about people, relationships, so forth and so on. Now, myself, I'm a, I'm a hermit, but I enjoy that. It's my solitude. Solitude is an oasis. Loneliness is a desert. That's how I look at it. But I'm a social creature. I'm out karaoke with my partner four nights a week. I'm a ballroom dancer for 66 or 67 years, so I can be social. We learn from the social, but in solitude, we can sit back and absorb what we've learned through the social yeah. process. I agree. And most people cannot sit. And in fact, there's studies like this in my book, which I can't withdraw. A study was done on putting men and women above the age of 30 in a room by themselves for 15 minutes. And most men would probably rather be shocked. That's right. That's right. By electrocution. (laughs) Yeah, I've read that. They can't be by themselves. They can't handle it. But that's where you figure things out is in solitude. You have to stand back. You have to be objective about things. But people aren't getting a job. They don't back away. No. They're immersed. That's exactly right. And if you're a writer or an artist, you seek solitude because that's the only place you can come That's why I encourage my guys to journal. It's what makes their life objective. In my book says, and I've said, and I do, and I practice it, and I just read recently, you need to write because in write, it causes you to question everything. Who is my audience? Where am I going for? Is this the right word? Is this the right paragraph? It's constantly thinking, questioning, 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 questioning. Am I approaching the right How many chapters? It's a constant questioning process, which is a constant thinking process. But you yep. don't get that. There's a thing called the cocktail party effect. And that comes from when you're in a cocktail party, and there's all people in the room chatting and so forth and so on, and you're chatting to somebody, and your name is mentioned. You pick it up just like that. So your brain is doing that all the time. So if you're immersed in, in playing your favorite music or you're around people, you can't do that. You can't think. You can't concentrate. You can't pick up pieces. You can't put them together, sort them out. You can't do it. And we have all, going back to your video games and all these other things, it's a total waste of brain power. Yes. Uh, no, well, and that's why we, you We should, entertain ourselves to death, literally. Which was which, Huxley's which, book. Which wasn't during my time because we didn't have that. So yeah. entertainment was in the community. Now, I was in sports my senior year. I was a wrestler. I learned a lot out of that, but my background was music. Having both parts, and I was in good shape. I'm in great shape. But I didn't strut around with that. It just, it just was what I got. So what was that Joe Rogan clip you sent me yesterday? Why did you send that to me? Because I know you've talked about him, and all I just was passing information on what they're talking. They're trying to pit Dr. Somebody, Peter Hotex. Hotex against somebody with an opinion. RFK Jr. Yeah, which one is an opinion and the other guy works on facts. You can't you can't have a discussion. You can't have a discussion. No. Interesting. Because Kennedy can say, well this study over here and this study over there so show it to me. Yeah. Well Hortez has been through this for years. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But he's also received grants for well, vaccines. Well that's and- that's that's fine. And he's done well. By any measurement, you have to measure these things. If it can't be measured, it can't be improved or checked. So you don't think they should talk? Joe no, Rogan because, because had a climate science advocate and then one who was what you would call a climate science denier. He mm-hmm. had them on back-to-back episodes, and it was great. You got to hear both sides. Science of climate is muddier. It takes an awful lot of data. But if you've got the data and the other guy just, just has an idea or an opinion or what he's heard— 
Good luck on having a discussion. I think just like just like you can't talk, you can't talk to cult members. You can't give them facts. They're going to ignore it. They blow it off. Mm -hmm. You just can't give it to them. So you were sending me the clip to say these two shouldn't debate. I'm saying I sent it to you. Look at this. That's all I sent for you. Look at this. I wasn't saying who should or who shouldn't. Okay, let's do fun questions. Okay, you think social media is a net negative on society? Yes, you do. Are you on social media at all? Not really. Not I mean, really. I have Spotify, I have Facebook, but I don't use them. I use them because I because of my books I've written. That's the reason I did it. The reason that in my website, and because of my technical background, I can build a website even at the age of almost 80, okay, and administer it, is that, as we just mentioned before, people aren't reading books. So if you want to get important information out, it's via the internet. And that's yeah. not social media, but via the internet. The guy that translated my book, I think I might have intimated, I wrote a book called The Human Key. There was this guy that came from India to visit friends of his in New Jersey. They screwed up his airline fare, so he said he got money from it. So he said, oh, while I'm here, I think I'll fly down to Dallas. While he was down to Dallas, he went to a book fair. And you'll find out why he did that later because of what he does. And he picked up my book, and he scanned it. He said, oh, hmm, interesting. So he flew back to New Jersey, read some. Then he emailed me. Then we had a phone conversation. Then he asked he could come down, spend his own money, come down to talk to me, to ask for permission to translate my book. Now, this guy is my age. And what he's been doing for his life, he's a lexicographer. He's written dictionaries in six different languages. On top of that, he's published both in book form and completely online because he felt the information was so vital, he needed to give it away. And interesting, on my website, my introduction page, I give it away because the information needs to get out. I call it, I'd be irresponsible if I didn't do it or maybe even worse. And he apparently thought the same way, which I thought was fascinating. That's awesome. In their prime, who are you taking on a dinner date? Heather Locklear or Christy Brinkley? Neither. Is that because you think Julie's going to listen to this? No, no. No. Julie, in a relationship. This is the best relationship I've had in my life, male or female. We have several things going with it. Absolute trust factor. She's talented in music. I have music. One of the things we share, which is most important in marriage, as far as I'm concerned, is a sense of humor. Because it allows you to look at different perspectives. People without a sense of humor have blinders on. They think in black and white. They can't see other perspectives. That's why we have the term comedy relief. It provides relief even in a tragedy. Everybody thinks they have a sense of humor, though. Yeah, I know. But apparently we do because it works. And if you talk to Sharon, who we're in her house right now, or the other people, they see it all the time. Like if you were on a dating app, that person would want someone with a sense of humor. Well, yeah, we all have a sense of humor. They don't think of that. They don't, they don't, they're not looking for a sense of humor. Is it combative? They're looking for what they look like, what their <laughs> hobbies are. I'll bet you, we're not going to bet any money on this because neither one of us is going to investigate it, but I'll bet you a sense of humor is hardly ever mentioned on those dating apps. Hardly ever. And mm-hmm. it's so vital. It allows you to have different views, different perspectives, and it's all about perspectives. You know what's mentioned now is wine, dog lover. <laughs> I'm telling you, pictures of exotic locations. Yeah, yeah. 
filters. Sales, 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 sales. <laughs> now, I will have to say, of those, I would pick dog lover, mm. if they're really dog lover. Because that, that's an association between man and animal. And dogs are the longest domestic animal we are involved in. That's why they can read our feelings. It goes back before anything. You'd be hard-pressed to meet a woman over the age of, say, 27 without a dog who's single. Because there are a lot of right? single yeah. women nowadays yeah. over the age of 27. Because well, they're waiting. Because they're well-educated. They can support themselves. Mm. A lot of them aren't going to have kids. I went to school with them. So I watched <laughs> them grow up on Facebook. And I, someplace in here, in these papers, I don't know if I'm going to look it up right now. But the marriage age has changed drastically over the last 50 years. Oh, yeah. So males and females are waiting longer, both of them. Now, I got married when I was 27, which was probably late when I got married. 37, yeah. almost 38. Well, but it was more challenging for me because I was moving from country to country, so you don't build long-term relationships necessarily. That's the downside. The downside of my life is I didn't build long-term relationships because mm -hmm. I was in this country for this many years. and I still retain some of those, but they're not close. They live in Singapore or Australia or someplace else. I was married when I was... 27, and she was from Georgia, and that was during the Vietnam War, and I didn't know if she could handle it or not. I didn't think that much. I was naive. We got to Vietnam. She was scared out of her mind, but never told me. Mm. Talk about the stress on that. Probably yeah. because it was the first time it had ever been televised, right? War. Isn't that true? You no, know, but but when, when you got there, the smells, the sounds. Oh, nobody she speaks, went nobody, there. Oh, yeah. Oh. Doesn't speak the language. Gunshots at night. Usually soldiers just celebrating Saigon, shooting it in the air. Total strangeness. And there, I was operating tugboats in the Delta, so I was the operations guy. So I was gone. I had a full-time housekeeper, but even so, she didn't speak English. So it was really stressful, but she never complained about it. Mm. And so she held that in. Then we got pregnant. She came back. Her father's a doctor in Georgia. She had the child. Went back to Vietnam when our son was three months old. The youngest Vietnam veteran walking around today. <laughs> but that type of life I lived is not conducive to family life. No, I wouldn't imagine. You can call me an adventurer and done all these things. And I didn't do them for, hey, I'm going to be an adventurer. It's just I lived a life of why not. Somebody suggested something like my brother. What do you think about going to Vietnam? This is what we've done over there. Yeah, why not? Or starting a tug and barge business from nothing and build a 33 barge and six tugboats in Vietnam during the war. I never thought I was going to build a tug barge. In 1979, I had to ship two doctors, nine nurses to sea rescue for the Vietnamese boat people. I never thought of doing that. How but, long did you stay married to that lady? That uh, 17 years. So you broke up when you were here, back in the States? Yeah. And we were separated quite a bit. She lived in Oman with me. I was a provincial administrator in Oman. But then I was up in the province, which is really rugged territory, and she was in Muscat, which is the capital. My brother was there, so there's other people there. But even so, my son and her were there. And it was British schools for my son who was six years old. And by that time, British students had learned to read and write and not in the States. So mm. he was the dumb guy. That didn't work out too well. <laughs> What's uh, the best food you ever had in the world? I've said for years that if I was forced to eat only one nationality's food, it would be Thai. Because, Maybe because I'd probably it, agree. it's a combination of Indian, Chinese, Indonesian, 
So they borrowed some of the curries from uh, India, but they're not the same curries. So there's this, I use a Yiddish term here, a mishmash mm-hmm. of foods, real combinations. Plus the people of Thailand, I found to be, Thai was my first language after English mm. because the, the Thais were so outgoing. The most common phrase in Thailand is maifenlai, which means no sweat, no problem. It's an attitude. You don't see them arguing That's all the over the world. Jamaica, I ran Oh, wait, that's another thing. Right? But I think the Thais have made more than the Jamaicans <laughs> of their nation. We won't get into all that politics. But it's an attitude. And because of the Theravada Buddhism, which is the original Buddhism, it's a simpler one. The one that's up in China and down in Vietnam, they added local spirits and so forth, and so it become very complex. Mm-hmm. So it's a very simple lifestyle. All the young boys and some of the young women in their 14, 15 becomes monks for six months. And they travel door to door, which we call begging, but it's not. It's an honor to feed them. So it's part mm. of the, it's a community thing. So they're engaged in the religion. They live it. If uh, you and Julie could go somewhere in the world for one month later this year, where would you go? Anywhere. I wish you hadn't brought that up. Cost is no We've talked object. About that. We talked about that. I don't know. What have you narrowed it down to? Nothing. You haven't? Okay. Well, if you uh, need some suggestions, well, you should have more <laughs> suggestions than me. Well, I've been burnt. What I mean by that is I've been all over the place. So where would I want to go now? A lot of the time I spent in other countries before the world developed where it is now, so it was more interesting. Now it's become more commercial. Commercialized, yeah. Commercial and all that. I left Vietnam in 1954 before it fell, and I went back in 1984, and just that difference was skyscrapers and it, it, just, wow. it lost its flavor became more business and more of this and more of that mm-hmm. i like the original cultures and so forth and of course bangkok is one of the humongous cities so i live primarily in the countryside when i lived there so you can never go back i'm trying to think of the writer says you can never go back home if you were stuck in vietnam for a month and you could only bring one album with you who would you bring album yeah, or well, CD or Spotify I list. I wouldn't bring any. I sing Vietnamese. So you would just sing. <laughs> I sing in Vietnamese. You would sing. And, okay. and interestingly enough, Vietnam was a French colony. So they had ballroom dancing when I was there back in, you know, cool. in the 60s. And yeah. Thai was associated with English. They had ballroom dancing. So there's things I did there which were more Western. And it wasn't until another 20 years that the Chinese got into ballroom dancing. They're big competitors here in Houston and so forth and so on. And that blend of cultures gives you something else. Some flavor. Flavor and simplicity. I love simplicity. Leonardo da Vinci said the greatest sophistication is simplicity. Uncluttered life. We like, live that. We like, live in the same neighborhood. Like like this house. Yeah, like this no, house no, we're in. It's not. This is cluttered. <laughs> I don't know. It's not huge or anything. No, but I mean, the amount of stuff in it. Oh, yeah. So, financial question. If somebody gave you $100,000 and forced you to invest it in three companies, Tesla, Amazon, and Apple, but you could allocate the $100,000 however you liked, how much would you put into each of the three companies? Tesla, Amazon, and Apple. AI. Whichever company is more AI-focused? Certainly. And... With protections. Okay. I'm really concerned about AI. The reason being, we have this saying that goes back to the dawn of mankind, seeing is believing. We will not be able to do that anymore. Right now, I can go on AI and read 14 sentences into it, and I can have it read my book, and it sounds just like me. 
Yeah, it's nuts. Okay. They also can do complete fakes. Knows I could be sitting there talking and you believe me. Oh, so yeah. now you don't know who to believe and who's saying what, how, and when. That's how it's going to be. So the basic human thing of seeing is believing is gone. <laughs> yeah. You think the internet's bad now with all this disinformation and misinformation? It's worse. Now it's perpetration of disinformation. What do you think of Meghan Markle? Give me a 1 to 10. 10 being good. I don't think about her. Never thought about her? No. Okay, one piece of advice for a happy, healthy relationship as you have. Y'all met when you were 66? You've been together? 70. 70. So you've been together about nine years? Mm Mm-hmm. What would you say is the key to happiness there? Well, let's a little history here. I was single for 27 years. Oh, wow. She was single for 23 years. We were not oh. looking. If you're looking, you have a chart of what you want. Good luck. You'll never find it. It has to be spontaneous. It has to be natural. And I first introduced myself. I always danced with all the new women no matter what age and so forth, because if they, they, they could sit there all night, nobody dances with them. So if I dance with them, they say, oh, Ted's dancing, and so they started dancing with them. So that's what I did with Julie. And, after about, and I'm a table hopper, so I am social. And one time I sat down at her table, and, and many times I did, and I put my hand on her arm, and I said, you know, I really feel comfortable with you. And in her brain, that was ding. <laughs> okay, that was the signal. I've said before or since, Boy, I wish I'd known that line before. <laughs> but it's not a line. That's not what kind of line would that yeah, be? No, okay? that's good, though. Oh, I know. Did you hear that, fellas? That's, that's I feel right. really comfortable with you. Yeah, it, so you had to find somebody who's comfortable. You mm-hmm. have somebody with the same value systems. As I mentioned before, sense of humor, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Because you're going to get into arguments. So you have to get out of those. You have to be able to laugh at things in the past. And somebody who doesn't worry about what other people think of them, be natural. You're natural anyway if you don't worry about what other people think. Like my bald head. And I've worn a beard and I, I got fired because I had a beard. Hmm. Because beards were not, for example, UPS until three years ago. And UPS has been around a long time. It's a privately held company. They did not allow their drivers to have mustaches below the corners of their mouth or beards. Hmm. All the time in the history until four year, three, four years ago. Because at that time, women were at home. They were housemakers and they wanted all-American clean-cut guys coming to the door and the beard was the heavy in the old western movies the guy with the beard okay mm, interesting but i born i got fired in thailand for it and then my boss got fired for firing me because technicians over there were rare <laughs> okay and the guy the guy and my boss only fired me because he was pressured three times by a major that was inspecting the site and he pushed torleaf who was a nice norwegian guy and he fired me i went back to saigon and the headquarters of the company was in Saigon, and the, the guy who ran the place, the head guy, was a retired le- lieutenant colonel. He said, what are you doing here? And I told him the story. He picked up the phone. <laughs> yeah? Good. Well, no, it's not good because he fired Torleaf. Nice guy. I shaved for the first time in eight years about three months ago. And the reason I don't shave is because my wife likes the facial hair, but mm-hmm. my daughter, who's two, yeah. doesn't. So it'll she grow, didn't like it'll the prickles. Grow on her, it'll grow on her. So well, I shaved okay. it just the for th- a month th- or so. The thing is, the longer it grows, the softer it gets. In That's the beginning, true. it's hell, yeah. maybe for children. Yeah. But my son has never seen me without a beard. And my wife, only because we did when I was in the Air Force, she's seen me without a beard. Okay, last question, Ted. How can people connect with you online? And how can they get your book? 
I have an information website. It's not a sales website. In fact, I say on my website, if you're not connected with this stuff, don't get my book. I say it right off front. The name of the book that's been translated and the translation is also on my website and the history of how that happened, as I mentioned to you, is the name of the book is The Human Key. And the human key is a question, is the question. The question is the human key because that's how we discover all information by asking. Either it's before us, like Einstein or us, okay? And the name of the website is thehumankey.com. TheHumanKey.com. Anywhere else? Well, that's my primary site. The one thing about my subject and the reason that this, the Rao, that's the guy that translated, and I give it away, is because you could listen to it a hundred times. I could talk about it a hundred times. It would be the same thing. It's so basic. It's a universal truth, and you cannot amplify it or simplify it. It just is what it is. You either buy into it or you don't. I say, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. And it is a short read, and that's what we need these days, right? My website? If the website doesn't grab you, forget it. No, I said the book. The book is not a long well, read. You read the, uh, the shorter book. Oh. Which is called The Learning Curve. And it's a truncated version that the full book, which goes into many things on education and so forth and so on, how this works, that's uh, 340 pages. The book that you have is 174 pages. Okay. But it's a fast read. But I said simplicity is always better. Go to the website. I've simplified it more and been more direct and bang, bang, bang. Plus, there's a 10-minute podcast on there that I made. Awesome. There it is. Ted Agon of thehumankey.com. And Agon is spelled A-G-O-N. Friends, thank you so much for tuning into this episode. By the you, way. You got something else to say? Yeah, by the way. If you put... My name in your search engine, Ted Agon, it'll populate three pages. Okay, cool. It's a rare name. Okay. Thank you for tuning in. It means so much to me, folks. If you enjoyed this episode with Ted, please copy the link and share it with a friend. And if you wish to follow my adventures, I'm at man underscore overseas on both Twitter and Instagram. Thank you, folks. <laughs> <laughs>